I was doing some research this week and I found, uh, uh, we were, was looking at some research about medicine and things that are happening in the medical world and lifespans and came across this idea that the lifespan in North America now, on average, is 29,220 days. 29,220 days. That is on average what you will live. And as I was reading that, thinking about that, uh, if you do the quick math, which I know you've all done in your head, you've divided it by 365.25 days and all of that, that's right at 80 years. And so for males, it's actually 79 years. For females, it's right at 81 years. And so that means the average lifespan is right at 80 which means a halfway in the middle of that is, okay, y'all can do that math, right? Halfway in the middle of 80 is 40. That is not why we titled the name of this series 40, all right? But it is sobering for those of us that are approaching 40, Jeff, or that are all right over 40, me, right? That we have, we're halfway point. We're on the, I'm literally on the downhill slide for the average lifespan in a North America today. But I was thinking about that because I was thinking about the number 40 and the number 40 as it relates to days. And so the average human in a North America lives 29,220 days and 40 days out of that life is 0.13%. It's less than a percent. 0.13%. And yet, Scripture tells us over and over again that God used 40 days to radically transform people. That God can use 0.13%. Now, the reality is God can change a life in a moment, in an instant. But again and again in Scripture, he uses this pattern of 40 days. And so Noah and the world is transformed with 40 days of rain. Moses is transformed with 40 days on Sinai. David is transformed after his defeat of Goliath, after 40 days of challenge from Goliath. Elijah is transformed after 40 days from a single meal. Nineveh is transformed after responding to a 40-day ultimatum from the Lord through the prophet Jonah. Jesus is empowered after 40 days in the wilderness. And the disciples are transformed after 40 days with the risen Savior. What I'm convinced of is that your life and my life can be radically changed in 0.13% of our lives in just 40 days. So we're starting a new series called 40. We're going to focus on 40 days of seeking the Lord, of asking the Lord to show us who he is, how he wants us to live. You say, well, why are we doing that now? What's the significance of now? Well, the reason we're doing that is because Tuesday, this Tuesday, like two days from now, the 20th of February, marks 40 days until Easter. So 40 days from Tuesday is Easter. And so some of you are like, wait, wait a minute, the time is going too quickly, right? Like, where did the year go? All right. 40 days until Easter from Tuesday. And so I'm going to challenge us. As a congregation, myself, as individuals, to set aside those 40 days from Tuesday to Easter to humble ourselves and to pray, to seek the Lord, to turn from our wicked ways. 
Over the last two weeks, we've kind of set this up talking about what it takes to change, what it takes to refresh, what it takes to be revived. And we talked about specifically the prayer that is required in that. And we talked last week about the change in our life that has to happen, the humbling in ourselves and the turning into the Lord. And so I'm going to ask ourselves, I'm going to ask us as a church, I want to ask you as individuals over the next 40 days to set aside some time to focus on the Lord. As a church, we're going to do a couple of things to help kind of propel us in that direction. First of all, we're starting a new series of messages today that we're going to look at, take a flyover view of the life of Jesus. We're going to look at some major events in the life of Jesus. Just pick them up one at a time. Look at the big events today, like the temptation of Jesus. And next week, the calling of the disciples and missions in a couple of weeks. And then also what he did in teaching and what happens with Miracles and the crucifixion. And then, this is going to blow your mind, on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's okay, right? So we're going to take a big picture look at the life of Jesus over these next few weeks. But we also want to, during the week, kind of encourage you a little bit. And so we've set up a system where two to three times a week, we're going to send out just a quick, like a minute long, um, both either audio or video or and written on top of that, just quick devotional from our staff, from our church people, that you're going to be able to be delivered right to your phone, um, right to, to any device you have. And so we're going to encourage you to sign up for that. So you you can receive that. In fact, I want to encourage you to sign up for it now. And so we're going to put this on the screen. All right. Text. If you want to be a part of that. All right. You can take your phones out now. All right. Do this like now or you'll forget. Right. Like I would. All right. Text the word 40. Now, I'll just tell you, I did this in the first service and had a great response. OK. Lots of people did that. But I did have a couple of people that in the text line wrote text 42. Now, you don't do that. All right. Just the word 40, okay? So what are you going to text? The word 40 to 615-908-2874, all right? Don't call that number. I don't think it's a real number that you can call, but you can text it, all right? When you do that, you'll get a response back. And then starting Tuesday, the day that the 40 days start, I'm going to have a devotional set up there. We'll send that out in the morning. You can just click on the link, and it'll take you right to where you need to go. And we're going to do that from now until Easter, After you've done that, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. For some of you, that means you just go to a different app on your phone. But Matthew chapter 4. If you came today and you don't have a Bible with you, or you like to share a Bible, there's Bibles in the pews that'll be from the version that I'll be using that exactly match what I'll be on the screen. And so I encourage you to do that. We're going to start our journey through the life of Jesus with a universal issue. Something that every single one of us experiences, something every single one of us struggles with, something that every single one of us has to overcome, and that's temptation. We're going to talk specifically today in Matthew chapter 4 about the temptation of Christ, about the big picture idea of Jesus encountering Satan in the wilderness. And when we tell this story, in some ways it's going to feel majestic and epic and confrontational because it's Jesus, Son of God, versus the enemy, Satan, in a wilderness, almost like a, an old Western duel is set up. But the truth is, for most of us, temptation doesn't come in epic majestic, confrontational moments. For most of us, temptation comes in common life, in everyday living. 
And sometimes it's easy to forget how monumental some of the decisions we are making are because they seem like it's just a part of common life. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at this story of Jesus and the temptation that comes in the wilderness. I want to talk for a minute about what that teaches us about him and what it teaches us about us. And then kind of how we're going to move forward in these 40 days out of some lessons that we've learned from this passage. It's an important passage. Hebrews tells us that part of the reason it's important because it shows us that we have a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in every way and yet remained without sin. And so in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I want us to talk just for a minute about the first word in that statement. Then Jesus. Then. See, chapter 4 comes right after chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles open, if you're looking at it, what happened at the end of chapter 3? What was the event that happened right at the end of that? It's the what? It's the baptism of Jesus, right? And so what happens right before this story, right before the temptation of Jesus, is the baptism of Jesus. And that's significant because that is officially what kind of kicked off his ministry. That Jesus appears, John the Baptist has been preaching throughout the land about repentance and about baptism. And he keeps talking about this one that's going to come after him, this one that's going to follow him, this one that's going to be greater than him. That he couldn't even, he didn't even come close to. And Jesus walks up to John the Baptist and says, man, I'm ready to be baptized. And John says, man, you ought to be baptized in me. I'm not going to be baptized in you. And Jesus says, this is to fulfill all righteousness. You must do this. And so Jesus is baptized. And if you've heard that story, you know that story. You know what kind of happens at the end of it. He's baptized. He goes under the water. And as he comes up, the spirit descends like a dove. And there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So just imagine that scene for a minute. Lots of people around John the Baptist, his cousin, is there in the water with him. Jesus is there. He knows. He's been waiting. He's been preparing. I mean, most most scholars think you're looking at he's been preparing for 27, 28, 29, 30 years for this moment. And at this moment, at 30 years, he finally, finally is ready to launch out into the ministry that he has been called to do. That he has left the throne of heaven for. That he has come to earth. That he has humbled himself to become one of us. And as he's there getting baptized, he comes out. And to receive the affirmation of the Father in that moment. For the Spirit descends like a dove. And the voice declares, this is my Son. My beloved Son. It says immediately following that. The understanding is right after that. Get out of the water. Walk around. Say hello to a couple people. And then immediately. Jesus is led up by the spirit. Into the wilderness. To be tempted. By the devil. After he had fasted. 40 days. And 40 nights. One of the most understated. Verses in scripture. He was hungry. Some of you ate two hours ago and you're already wondering when lunch is getting here. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord, right? 
We, we had basketball games yesterday. My mom and dad were in town. And we, we after the basketball games, we, we were going to go eat. And then our girls were going back with them because of the long weekend and spent some time with them in Dyersburg. And the boys are staying here. We also, let's all go eat together. And so we went and ate at Chef's Market. Anybody here like Chef's Market? Anybody? Yeah. And the thing about Chef's Market is they have um, large portion sizes, right? And so we, we ate there. We had a great meal. We went to Chef's Market because my mom loves it and because my um, mom and dad were here and they were paying. So we went to Chef's Market and uh, had a good meal there. And um, Eli and Luke um, are boys. And Eli is a full-grown teenage man boy. And Luke is on his way. All right. And so they like to eat lots of food, right? And in our house, I think I've told you all this, we jokingly, but it's real, call Eli the vulture because he will eat his plate quickly and then look around at who is not going to finish their plate and they need to pick things off of their plate to eat, all right? He finishes our food for us on most occasions. And so Luke has started to do that as well. So yesterday we're eating there. His sister, I look over at Ava's plate and it's almost empty. I'm like, Ava, that's awesome. You must have been hungry. And she said, oh, Luke ate all my fries. And he had. He had just kept reaching over and eating the fries. And so Luke ate his meal and half of Ava's meal and some of Maddie's meal. We get home 30 minutes later and he looks up to me and he says, Dad, I think I need a snack. I'm going to make one of, we have these frozen, they're called Unos, they're like steak and cheese in a hot, they're like fancy Hot Pockets, all right? They still burn the roof of your mouth like you wouldn't believe. They're just fancy Hot Pockets. He said, I need one of those for a snack. And I was like, no, that's like a meal, right? A lot of us in this room, we, we, we don't eat in a couple of hours. The word is you get hangry, right? Like you get hungry and angry together, Right? Jesus had not eaten for 40 days. I want you just to get a picture of what's happening here. Before we even move to the temptations, I want you to get a picture of what's happening. So Jesus has this high emotional great moment with the Lord that baptism has happened. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes into the wilderness. And let's talk about that word for a minute. When we think about wilderness, when people think about wilderness around here, people think like the Smoky Mountains. Like the Appalachian Trail. Like, that sounds like going to Yosemite. Like, he went out into the wilderness. But that word in the original language does not mean wooded area with fun squirrels playing. It means, this is the word wilderness, it means the devastation. So imagine, if you will, this verse, instead of Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness... I mean, like there's even like a water park in Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge called Wilderness in the Smokies, right? Imagine Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the devastation. Nothing. Desert. To be tempted by the devil and he's fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. So this is the situation Jesus finds himself in. He is alone in the devastation, hungry, was Satan there tempting him. Don't romanticize this at any way. This is harsh and hard and difficult. And most of us in this room, when we got done with the baptism, would not have said, now give me 40 days of terrible stuff. He's waited 28, 29 30 years for this moment. And the first thing that happens is 
go out to the devastation. Fast for 40 days. Alone with Satan. This is how Satan tempted him. He goes on the next verse. Then the tempter, Satan, approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If. You know what's interesting about that particular part of this story? Is that just a few verses earlier, like two verses earlier, God had declared to Jesus what? This is my beloved son. That's who you are, Jesus. And then he goes to the wilderness, to the desolation, to the desert, to the devastation for 40 days and 40 nights without food. And Satan comes to him, basically says, if you are the son of God, why are you in this? Why has God left you here without food? In the devastation by yourself. What he's saying to him is, you're really not the son of God. Or you wouldn't be here. We're going to talk about circumstances in just a minute because it's a part of the second temptation. But what is happening here is, Satan is doing the same thing he has done since time began and the same thing he does in your life. He is asking Jesus to do two things. First of all, to question the truth of God's word. And secondly, to question the reality of his relationship with him. And when Satan tempts you and me at the basis of every temptation he will give us, it's two things. God doesn't really love you, and so he doesn't have your best interest in mind. And you can't trust what he actually says. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God. Satan is trying to divide him from his relationship with the Lord. He's trying to, 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 to discourage him from trusting the wisdom of God's word. It's the same thing he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Well, God, did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree because of why? Well, that's just because you'll be like him. You don't have to trust that. Jesus tells a, a parable about sowing seeds of the gospel of the word of God. And that some of it lands on hard ground and immediately a bird comes and takes it away. And the bird represents Satan taking it away to distract us from it, to distract the hearer. In our world, it may not look exactly like we think it would look for God's word to be separated from our lives. For most of us in this room, it's not any real kind of evil thing that separates God's word that we're doing in our lives. But oftentimes it's just the reality that we don't fit God's word or his ways into what we're already doing. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters tells the story of demons plotting with one another about how to deceive God's people. One of them in particular is having an interview and he says that he had someone that really started thinking about God, really started worrying about God, really started reading God's word. And the other one says, well, how did you react when that happened? He said, I didn't argue with him. I just brought to mind some pressing business matters that would make him busy and forget he needed to look at God's word. So he comes to him and he says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first thing that he tempts him with is to prioritize God's gift over God himself. To satisfy yourself with something good, but not intended at that moment. 
I think it's interesting that the first temptation here is not on something that's inherently bad. Bread is not inherently bad. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? Right? I see those hands, right? But here's the issue with what's going on here. I mean, even Jesus later would, would use and produce bread, right? He would, not out of stones, but out of one loaf, he made lots. Some fish, a couple of loaves of bread, he makes enough to feed thousands. So it's not the act of making the bread here that is the issue. The act is that he is in the wilderness, in the desolation, and while he is there, what is he doing? What's that? Some of you got it. You just whisper in it, right? What's he doing? He's fasting. He has dedicated this time to the Lord. He is fasting in that moment. And so the issue here is not the bread. It's that at this moment it would have been going against what God had desired to eat the bread. Satan says, you're the son of God. Why should you be hungry? Just make some bread. Take care of it. Don't you know who you are? You're the son of God. Why are you starving? Just make some food for yourself. Take care of it. Fulfill your desire for food outside the will of God. What he's testing here is, do we trust the goodness of God, whether we desire him or we desire what he provides? The truth is we all have desires, food, water, sleep, sex, relationship, companionship, and they're God-given desires. God has given us the desire for all of those things. So in and of themselves, they are not bad. But what Satan likes to do in my life and in your life is to take something good that God has made and for us to treat it as the ultimate. So with food, it's a good desire but if we're not careful, we lead ourselves to undisciplined overeating. And it controls our lives. For sleep, it's a good desire. But if we're not careful, it turns into apathy and laziness. Sex is a good God-given desire. To be enjoyed within the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. And only there. But we say, no God, that's too limiting. And so we look for sex outside of that that leads to lust and pornography and adultery. The problem is that all of those things, when we take God's good delights, when we take the desires of our heart and we get them outside of God's will, they do not lead to delight. They lead to destruction. So Adam and Eve, when they are in the garden and they immediately take a bite of that fruit, everything changed immediately for them. Their relationship with one another, their relationship with the Lord, they couldn't stay in the garden anymore. It changed in a moment. They thought it would fulfill their deepest desires. They got it outside of God's will and it destroyed what they had. Jacob and Esau. The reason we have the nation of Israel is because Jacob and Esau had this little thing where Esau sold his birthright for... A bowl of soup. And I almost imagine that as moment that stew got into his belly, he didn't think, man, it was worth it. What he's offering here and what Satan really offers at each of these three temptations and what you're offered on a daily basis is to sacrifice tomorrow to be fulfilled today. And Jesus' response is simply, there's something more important to me than my physical desires or my physical Filling of my stomach. That I desire to serve the Lord. 
I desire to live on his word. To do the will of the one who sent me. I think about when he is there at the woman on, with the woman at the well and the disciples come back from town and they're like, have you eaten anything? And he says, I've eaten. Well, where did you get food? And he said, my eating is doing the will of my father. Second temptation, he says in the next verse. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels order concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, this is impressive here because Satan pulls out some obscure scripture. Quotes it to Jesus. And Jesus quotes back saying, but it is also written. Do not test the Lord, your God. So if the first one is about fulfilling desire, self-gratification with outside of God's plan, this one is about trusting our circumstances instead of God's promises. The key word here is test. And the point of this temptation is he takes them to the top of the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was the place that they it signified the presence of God. And what he's basically saying to him is, if you're the son of God, then God's presence ought to be taking care of you. And right now it's not. Jump off. Prove to yourself again that God still cares for you. Prove to yourself again that God still loves you. Prove to yourself that God still cares. Satan wants him to test God to prove he will take care of him. Just jump from the temple. It's a signal of God's presence. The angels will catch it. They're not going to let it happen. And Jesus' response is, why would I need to prove what he has already declared? It's not hard to trust in the goodness of God when life is good. But when life goes south, do you ask the questions, why? Why are you angry, God? Are you angry at me? Did I do something wrong? Is something the problem? What we have in this passage is a reminder that just because we're living according to God's plan does not mean that life will be perfectly good. Jesus is God's son, sinless, doing what God called perfectly, and still he's alone in a place called devastation after not eating for 40 days with Satan tempting him. In fact, the symbol of following Christ in the New Testament is the cross. So we can expect to have difficulty as we go. And when financial hardship hits or betrayal or uncooperative spouse or disrespective kids, we can't doubt the love of God for us. John Owen wrote, the greatest insult you can give to God after the cross is to doubt his love for you. When I was growing up, there was a hymn that we used to sing a lot growing up. And it's one of those that is stuck in my mind and it immediately starts to play. I just, it just, it's like it just automatically goes there. And it says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. The second temptation is to look at the circumstances around you and say, God must not care. Look at my life, it's in shambles. Look at my marriage, it's in shambles. Look at my kids, they're disrespectful. Look at my work, it's awful. Look at my health, it's terrible. And think, God must not care about me. I must have done something wrong. Instead, we look to the Lord and trust His promises. Third temptation, and then we're done. The third one. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. 
And this one is so powerful because it's exactly what Jesus had come for. God had promised him. Satan is offering him what God had promised him. The difference is Satan is offering it to him without the suffering, without the cross, without the pain. And what Jesus says to him is, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Hey, get out of here. I'm not doing that. Jesus refused to exchange the end time exaltation of the Father for the right now exaltation of Satan. He chose. He knew that all are to worship God and the way that he was to worship God was through suffering, obedience. And Philippians 2 tells us because as he did that, as he suffered and gave his life on the cross, that one day every knee will bow and every mouth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he tempts him three ways. First of all, he tempts them to prioritize God's gifts over God himself. To say that we want the stuff that God gives us more than we want God. We want the bread now the way we want it instead of trusting the Lord. He tempts them to trust in the circumstances of his life that are difficult over the reality of God's promises that have already been given. And he tempts them. Tempts them to do something good, get something good, but to do it in the wrong way or the wrong time. And this is why this passage is so important to it. It's not just a, a demonstration for us of how to resist temptation, although that is there. The reason this is important, the reason this passage is so important to us is because it shows who Jesus is. Because this was not Satan's last stand. This was kind of his first stand to really get him. But he had been tempting Jesus all along. And scripture says there that he left him. And in some translations it's for a time or for a more opportune time. The idea is he was going to come back and he did over and over again. But what it proves to us is that we serve a savior who won. Who is victorious. Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And so the point is not to run out there and start tackling, tackling Satan and doing it and, and resisting him without first giving our hearts and our lives and our devotion to Jesus. Because we cannot do it without him. This is the first step in his ministry. I think it's interesting that the first step in ministry to prepare him for what's coming is that God leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. And the way he prepares him for the temptation, because God knows what's coming, the temptation that's coming is to eat bread. The way he prepares him for the temptation of eating bread is to make him fast for 40 days. That's opposite of what we would do. If we knew there was a temptation coming where we weren't supposed to eat bread, we'd load up on food for four days. Right? Now, now, not always, technically, but some of you may come from Catholic backgrounds. Some of you may be aware of Catholic backgrounds, but um, you know that uh, Catholic calendar, Lent started last Wednesday, right? And so Lent is a time of fasting, giving up, that kind of stuff, biblical kind of commands to fast. I'm not, so that happened last Wednesday. Does anybody know what the Tuesday before Wednesday is called? Fat Tuesday, right? Anybody know what happened? Well, you don't have to tell me exactly, but Fat Tuesday is a day when people load up on everything they're going to give up on Wednesday. Right? Instead of that, Jesus goes out and fasts for 40 days to prepare himself, and then he's tempted about food. 
and he still wins. 40 days can change your life. I want to challenge you to do four things over the next 40 days. And they come straight out of this story. They come straight out of what he did. They help us prepare us for Easter. The first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to feast on God's word. Over the next 40 days, I want you to feast on God's word. I want you to read God's word. I want you to, you don't have to have a plan. Just take the gospel of Matthew and start reading it. Reading as much as you want to read one day. I would recommend more than one verse. Like I would read a chapter or so at least, right? And just read. If you get through all four gospels before Easter, great. Go to Acts. Or go back to Matthew and start again. If you want a plan, if you're one of those type A personalities that has to have a plan, put in Google, read the Bible and the New Testament in 40 days. And then just follow it. But feast on God's word. We've got this kind of crazy idea in our, in our society. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, most of you probably are, the, the, the phrase cheat day. Are y'all familiar with cheat day? Okay. I mean, you can tell by my, the way my physical physique that I'm big into working out and, and taking care of things right. Um, cheat day, the idea is that you six days or whatever period of time you eat healthy, you work out, you're really, really good. And then one day you get to do whatever you want to eating, right? Well, not whatever you want, but you get to eat whatever kind of good meals that you would normally eat that may not be as healthy. We've reversed that in Christianity. We go six days without feasting on God's word at all. And then we expect to fill up on one day. And for it to last us the whole week. If you look at all the studies out there, less and less people that are calling themselves committed Christians, faithful church members, are actually reading the word of God during the week. We don't have cheat day, we have catch up day. Like, I got to catch up on what I've been doing or what I hadn't been doing. Take these 40 days and feast on God's word. Just as Jesus obviously had feasted on God's word, when he starts quoting scripture, some of you know this right away. Some of you'd have to look it up for a minute. Does anybody know where all three scriptures are from that he quotes? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. All three of them are from Deuteronomy. Now, there's some, we don't have time to get into some significance with the children of Israel wandering in the desert and how he is the new Israel and all of that. But it's also just fascinating to me. It's not Psalm 23 he's quoting. It's not Genesis 1-1. He's quoting deep in Deuteronomy. He had obviously feasted on God's word. The second thing I'm going to ask you to do over the next 40 days is to find something and fast. Remove something from your life. Food, something. I mean, social media is fine, but do something that's really going to hurt on top of that too. Find something and fast. Not just for the sake of fasting and don't go around telling everybody what you're doing. Okay, don't post your list on Facebook. Here's what I'm fasting from, all right? Fasting in my life has been the thing, from whatever it is, that has drawn me closer to the Lord. Of almost anything else I do. Feast on the Word, fast, and then the third thing is resist. Temptation is coming. Resist it. Feast on the word, fast, and when temptation comes, pray for strength, in God's strength, resist. 
There are some of you that the way you're going to need to resist is not just say, I'm going to beat, try harder. Some of you in this room have a sin that is continually infecting your life. You cannot get over it. You cannot stop it. And what you need is not just more willpower. You need accountability. You need people to help you. You need people to come around you and help you with it. You need to confess it to somebody, to a friend, to a neighbor, to a close associate that is going to hold you accountable. I don't mean you stand up tomorrow in staff meeting at your work and tell everybody your secret sins, but you need someone to hold you accountable. One of the tragedies of American culture is we think we can do life on our own. And so sin gets buried inside and it never gets dealt with and we can't resist because it has a grip on us. Resist. And then the last thing, and this is the most important of the four, seek Jesus. Over these next 40 days, you're going to hear a lot about the story of Jesus because we're going to do it on Sunday morning. We're going to do it in these weekly um, two or three times a week. But it's because he's worthy. John says when he gets to the end of his gospel, he could not write all that Jesus did because there aren't enough books in the world to hold it. Seek Jesus. And as you do that, watch your life transform. I believe with all my heart that our lives can change, our church can change, our community can change in 0.13% of our lives. And 40 days dedicated to him. My question for you is simply, are you willing to give him 0.13% of your life? For the next 40 days. Let's pray together.